Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're talking about what the state should do to handle its aging population of prisoners. Aging inmates often require special care, which drives up the cost of incarceration. And with more prisoners getting older, our prisons are starting to function as state-supported nursing homes. Joining me to talk about this are Jamie Fellner of Human Rights Watch and Beth Schwartz-Apfel, a Boston-based journalist who covers the criminal justice system. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, I want to start with you. Uh, You spent some time in many states and uh, prisons uh, examining the problem of aging prisoners. And I have to say I was quite startled by the statistics. If you could just begin by letting us know how big the problem is. Okay, we're having a little problem getting Jamie. All right, we'll move right on. Uh, I have Beth here in the studio with me. Jamie's on the phone. We're having a technical problem, and she'll be in uh, shortly. Uh, Beth, you have uh, – one of the reasons I wanted to start with Jamie is because she looked nationally at the problem, but you've been focused on Massachusetts, which, of course, is uh, one of our chief concerns here. Uh, what's your sense of how big the problem is here in Massachusetts? Uh, well, if you're talking about absolute numbers, the problem is relatively small. Uh, elderly prisoners represent uh, just 6% of inmates in Massachusetts. Uh, and I think the absolute number is somewhere in the range of 500, 600. So uh, considering that there's 24,000 uh, people in the correctional system in Massachusetts, the absolute numbers are relatively small. That said, uh, the cost of caring for these folks is much, much higher than the cost of keeping an inmate in general population. Uh, and not only that, the numbers are are set to, to just continue to grow at an exponential rate in the coming years. All right. Jamie uh, is back with us now. Uh, Jamie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Sorry about that. And, yeah, you know, it's okay. T- technology is fabulous. Beth just gave us a sense of, of the numbers here in Massachusetts. And she's made the point that though the numbers, the actual number seems uh, small, it's, the co- of course, the cost of caring uh, for these prisoners that, that makes this a, a problem we need to focus on. But I wanted to get a sense, now we know what hap- what's happening in Massachusetts, if you would give us the national scene, uh, how big is the problem nationally? Oh, I'm so sorry I wasn't able to hear the Massachusetts numbers. Nationally, what we've seen in the last four years is that the population age 65 or older has grown by about 63% in the last four years, even though the total prison population has grown by less than 1%. In other words, the number of older prisoners is growing at a much, much faster rate than other prisoners. And that's basically a reflection of the longer sentences they're serving and the decreased opportunities to leave before sentence completion, you know, the cutback in the use of parole and good time and everything. You have also more people coming into prison at older ages, but that doesn't seem to be driving this increase so much as just people are stacking up in prison. They're living longer So if they have a 30-year sentence or a life sentence, they're going to be growing old in prison. Um, I don't know if Beth mentioned, but the data I have is that there there are over 900 people in Massachusetts serving life without parole sentences. In other words, they've been sentenced to grow old and die behind bars. Yeah, the, uh, someone from the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security told me that a third of DOC inmates in Massachusetts are lifers. Um, so given well, that's, that, well, lifers is different. Lifers, life without parole. You can be, you can be a lifer and have the possibility of parole, mm-hmm. and you can have life without parole, meaning you're not supposed to ever be released. So we know that at least. I, I think it's probably now a thousand because those that data was from two thousand eight. Those people will all grow old and die in prison, putting huge pressure on the Department of Corrections to take care of them. And then among the lifers, those who've been sentenced who have a sentence of life, how many of those will get out before they die? I don't know. I don't know if you've been given that, but many of them, if if Massachusetts is the same as in other places, many of them aren't going to get out until they're quite old. So, uh, Jamie Fellner of Human Rights Watch, you, you, I mentioned uh, by way of, of intro- introducing you before your, your 
Mike went out, uh, that you had gone to many states and several prisons. So this isn't, I just want people to understand, this isn't your um, making a pronouncement based on one state or one piece of information. (laughs) Uh, I I just need people to understand that, that this is a really quite comprehensive report looking nationally at uh, what is happening. Yes, I didn't have, I didn't go to Massachusetts. But I went to Rhode Island, mm-hmm. <laughs> You're the little state to the below you, and Connecticut right. um, were among the states that I visited. Um, but no, it's and you know it's something that corrections officials acknowledge um, is a huge problem. It may not be at a crisis level in their minds yet, but they know it's coming. That if the, the numbers are just inexorable, um, you give people long sentences, they're going to stack up in prison and they're going to grow old. Well, I have to say that this is not something, uh, you know, I, I'm curious about the response to your r- report because maybe this is insider information between you and Beth, those who cover this area and look at this issue. I never even thought about aging prisoners until the discussion about three strikes uh, came up here in Massachusetts. And a lot of the opponents uh, to that uh, potential uh, legislation, it's still hung up in the legislature here, are saying, listen, this this is going to increase the population. Why don't we at least consider letting out some of the older prisoners? And I thought, oh, there's enough older prisoners to make a difference monetarily, uh, space-wise, all the rest of it, if, if we were uh, to consider doing that um, as a part of the if the three strikes goes through or if it doesn't, but at least consider that. I, I really hadn't thought about it. So to hear these kinds of statistics and see how uh, intense this is across the country is quite something. Uh, I, I want. You know if- I think, in general, and I forgive me for interrupting, but I think your your own thought process there is quite similar to that of many, many people, including legislators. You know, when legislators say, "Let's up the sentence," you know, it's always politically popular to increase sentences. They don't think about what that really means for people running the prisons, much less for the prisoners themselves. You know, life and their sort of their images, I think, you know, 35-year-old people who've broken the law, not 75-year-old people who've broken the law. Um, Prisons are designed and operated with younger, mostly men, with younger men in mind. They're set up in ways that don't make sense. And the gains to public safety of having somebody who's 75 or 80 or even younger but infirm you know, those games don't exist. It's kind of symbolic. Gee, we've sent him away for 40 years. But what does the public actually get from that? I can tell you that corrections people are scratching their heads trying to figure out how do we keep prisoners safe, provide the medical care they need, provide decent conditions of confinement, when we're looking at people pulling oxygen tanks behind them who, have, who are in wheelchairs, who are bedridden with disease. That's a very expensive and difficult proposition, and legislators aren't thinking about that. And in fact, Jamie, I wanted to just uh, read a piece from the summary of your report, uh, the report that uh, you did for Human Rights Watch, looking at the whole issue around aging prisoners, to give people a sense, because as you said, I, I didn't, I wasn't clear about what we're talking about. You and Beth have made this clear. So here specifically, I think, uh, is a good paragraph for people to hear. Prisons in the United States contain an ever-growing number of aging men and women who cannot readily climb stairs, haul themselves to the top bunk, or walk long distances to meals or the pill line, whose old bones suffer from thin mattresses and winter's cold, who need wheelchairs, walkers, canes, portable oxygen, and hearing aids, who cannot get dressed, go to the bathroom, or bathe without help, and who are incontinent, forgetful, suffering chronic illnesses, extremely ill, and dying. Now, I wanted to put some specificity uh, on the table for people to understand what we're talking about, because... I, again, I think my image is old guy in there, you know, pretty healthy, um, but just old, and the guard can watch him. But now you're talking about a whole population of people, Beth, I'm going to get you to weigh in on this too, who need care. Uh, we're talking nursing care, not just guarding. Can, can you speak to that, Beth? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I visited the um, activities of daily living unit in uh, in the Norfolk uh, Correctional Facility here in Massachusetts, um, and I spoke to the superintendent of that uh, of that prison, and he told me that uh, th- that ADL unit, the activities of daily living unit, has a certified nursing assistant on staff, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, every day. There's uh, an LPN who rounds, um, and there's a medical providers such as a nurse practitioner or an MD who uh, also makes daily rounds. So we're talking about just the medical staff. And he called that uh, a not an elaborate, not an elaborate 
staff, a sufficient staff. And I think that Superintendent Rodin was um, very careful to stress that um, they're not – this is just basic medical not care. Not frills. Not, no frills at all. No special treatment. No, nothing. I mean literally mm. um, these are guys who when I was there, there was a guy who had his walker with him in the shower and there was a nurse in the shower helping him bathe. Um, and everyone else was basically lying. It was a big dormitory style room. There were a bunch of beds arranged um, in one big room with a correctional officer at the door. And mostly they were just kind of lying there. Um, you know, staring at the wall. A few of them had little TVs. Um, so, so you know, I, I, I remember reading the Boston Herald um, did a, a story about this and, and they, called the, um, they called these assisted living centers with bars for golden ager inmates to serve their time and comfort. And um, I got to say, that's not what I saw. It was, um, it was, it was certainly not. You know, there wasn't. They weren't being mistreated, but it, it was. It wasn't a pleasant place to be. So, Jamie, given that now, and I'm just listening to all the services that Beth mentioned that are basic, not frills. We're talking that multiplied kind of many prisoners, and we're looking at state legislatures faced with cutting basic services for the rest of the population, and this is a big drain. It's a huge drain, and uh, let, let me just first say that in addition to all the assistance with basic living skills, which people need more and more assistance with, they're also going to have, um, you know, the last years of life are very expensive, whether you live in, a, in the community or whether you live behind bars. Your medical needs tend to increase, and they're very expensive. Having older prisoners behind bars increases the cost to the state because, one, they don't have the advantage of Medicaid. Medicaid does not support uh, cover people who are in prison. Two, you're paying for people who are, let's say, on life support or who are, you know, dying. There's no public safety threat at that point, but you're paying for all the security bells and whistles to keep them guarded. Um, so they're very expensive. The combination of the medical bills plus the the security makes these very expensive prisoners. And what the, I think the public needs to be asking itself is, what do we get for this? I believe, I work for a human rights organization. We believe people who injure others, who deprive others of their human rights, should be held accountable. And that's, you know, and that's why people who commit serious crimes should be sent to prison. The question is for how long and to what stage of their life. I think age and illness change the calculation as to how long someone should stay in prison. If you've been in prison for 15 or 20 years, a few more years in prison isn't going to – a few more years of punishment of being in prison doesn't, doesn't accomplish anything in terms of retribution or accountability. It doesn't accomplish anything in public for public safety. It simply costs a lot. And I want to remind people that there are other forms of punishment. Prison is one. Home confinement could be another. Um, so you're not just wandering free, not that many of these people could wander free anyway, given their physical condition. But, you know, there's this kind of knee-jerk response. We don't want to let people out of prison. I think we need to shift the conversation to how do we keep the public safe, ensure accountability, but not senselessly and needlessly keep, as a friend of mine said, all these old codgers who can't go anywhere or do anything, you know, behind bars at great cost to the public. Um, and as you say, it costs you know, depriving education of the money they need, a whole range of other public services that are being starved for funds so that we can keep people needlessly in prison. Uh, thank you very much, Jamie Fulner. I know you have to go, but for uh, giving us the uh, the essence of your report and uh, kicking off our conversation. Uh, I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking the prison system and what needs to be done as more of our prisoners become elders behind bars. I've been speaking with Jamie Fulner of Human Rights Watch. We'll continue the conversation with Boston-based reporter Beth Schwartz-Epfel and Kathleen Dennehy, the former commissioner for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. You're listening to 89.7 WGB. Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and the Boston Speakers Series, seven evenings at Symphony Hall with a lineup of speakers that includes two former presidents, a New York Times bestselling author, a miracle survival story, and much more. BostonSpeakersSeries.org.
and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. Next time on The World, India's caste system has discrimination and exclusion built right in. But some Indians in America still see value in celebrating their caste. Brahmins were not only religious people, they are also the scientists. To know that I am connected to that group of people gives a lot of pride. The Persistence of Caste, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. Saturday, July 14th, it's the WGBH Fun Fest. Cool off with some of the best ice cream around, like Ben and Jerry's Boston and Friendly's. Rock out to live performances from family favorites like Steve Songs, Ben Rudnick, Fluky and the Beans, Rick Golden, and others. Meet PBS Kids characters, enjoy rides, games, and more. Tickets are going fast, so don't delay. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash FunFest. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about our prison system and the aging population of prisoners. I'm joined by Beth Schwartz-Apfel, a Boston-based journalist who covers the criminal justice system. She recently wrote a piece on this for Boston Magazine. Also with us is Kathleen Dennehy, the former commissioner for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Um, Kathleen, let's start this way with you. How did we get here with the number of aging prisoners uh, crowding, really, the the prisons as we know that? Because we know that we have a chronic problem with overcrowding as it is. Well, you know, I'm surprised that people are surprised that we got here because, number one, prisons reflect society. And we've got graying of America. As a baby boomer myself, I see that in my own in my own sphere. And Prisons reflect society, as I said, and that's exactly what's going on in prison. We have two things happening. We have people aging in place. We have people aging within the prison system, and we also have people entering as new commitments at an older age than they have have entered before. Again, it's the, it's the baby boomer effect. And we, we had, in addition to that, Beth, uh, the 70s and the 80s with the war on drugs and the three strikes legislation other, and other places in the country that really put more people in prison earlier. Absolutely. And that's a phenomenon that has repeated itself all across the country. Um, and we see it in mandatory minimums, truth and sentencing, which Massachusetts participates in. Um, I also wanted to point out um, that Massachusetts, of course, is the home of Willie Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was Michael Dukakis who got, um, you know, bit by um, a relatively progressive um, furlough and parole program that Massachusetts had. And of course, Willie Horton was out on furlough when he um, committed some pretty heinous crimes. And uh, he was one of the main reasons that Dukakis lost the 1988 presidential election. So in 2010, when we had a, a Woburn police officer killed by someone who was out on parole, um, we see a similar reaction, right? Uh, Massachusetts uh, calling for a three strikes law now, um, long after that was in vogue for states to do. Um, now that this um, this officer was was killed by someone on parole, um, we're seeing that kind of backlash here in Massachusetts. So um, I think that that it's kind of a two pronged thing that the aging in the prison population is both uh, reflective of the larger baby boomers and also uh, these kind of harsh sentencing uh, laws. Um, Kathleen, to Beth's point and also to um, Jamie's point, who was on a little bit earlier talking about her report, um, it seems that that when people think about in, in putting in place these policies that will send more people to prison for longer, they really are not thinking about what happens after. And now here's the after and nobody thought about this. I think you're quite right. It's, um, it's, I think it's very easy in government to make policy decisions that the impact is deferred. Um, perhaps for generations. It, do, it doesn't come home to roost. And the, there are so many issues associated with the growing number 
of elderly and frail inmates. But I want to stop and make one point. Um, I I always take a close look at how we're defining the population. How are we defining elderly? And you pick up a variety of reports. Some say 50. Being over 50, I think I take exception to that, Um, 50, 60, 65. So I think the devil is in the details in terms of how we're defining it. Mm. Many years ago in Massachusetts, the legislature directed the Department of Correction to do a study of just this very issue. What does that profile of the offender look like in terms of increasing medical needs? Is there a need to develop an assisted living unit, for example. And what we found at the time, and this was back in the in the the early two thousands, what we found is that the most pressing need for assisted daily living, quite frankly, was within the ranks of the thirty and forty year olds. So it is not a question of just elderly and infirmed. Increasingly you are seeing people in prison who have mobility issues, um, who may be deaf, who may be sightless. Um, so I would I would expand the topic to include um, those that have physical or mental um, impairments that would require some degree of extra support. And I, I want to point out that when you were, your expertise was in, in health care when you were uh, part of the, the uh, Department of Correction system. And something that I have read, which is very interesting to me that I didn't know, and I'm sure you two do know, is that a, being in prison itself ages you. So you're 30 and let's say you're not blind, you're not deaf, you didn't come in with some other stuff, but just the mere fact of being in prison ages you. So now you're maybe 30, your real age, but your actual physical age may be 45. So you can see how that adds up as the longer you're you're staying in. Yeah, Kelly, I'm glad you mentioned that um, because that's a point that the Human Rights Watch folks made in their report, which is that um, they they used as their cutoff for elderly 55. And um, that, again, as as Ms. Dennehy said, that Mm -hmm. doesn't seem old to to those of us on the outside, but um, the anxiety and stress of prison life, um, the pretty limited caloric intake and nutritional, um, you know, spread uh, that's available to people in prison, um, limited access to medical care, and generally the things that make us healthy um, make you age faster. And I also want to say that um, the, 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 the population in prison is disproportionately drawn from um, folks of lower socioeconomic background who typically don't have good access to medical care even before they go into prison. So a lot of times when people enter prison, it's the first time they see a doctor. And so um, you're dealing with a population that is aging prematurely both before they get into prison and then once they're in prison, they're also aging at a faster rate. So I don't think it's necessarily outlandish to to consider 55 um, elderly when we're talking about this population. Well, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's generally accepted that those within correctional environments do have, for the very reasons that you've cited, Beth, do have um, sort of an accelerated aging process. But I, I have, quite frankly, I have seen lots of folks who are older who um, it, it's an individual situation. There are some it, – it's just as it is in the community. Certainly. There are some that age better than others. Um, but I'm cautioning us not to discount those that are in their 30s and 40s that are presenting with the exact same scenario. Let's and not let's discount them. Since you were uh, in the Department of Corrections, maybe you can ballpark this for us. So let's say there's only three and we all agree that, you know, 75 is older, okay? So let's say there's only three 75-year-old prisoners somewhere. What is the cost of maintaining whatever the health concerns we've got to be for that prisoner versus one that's, I don't know, 25 and in relatively good health? So just so people understand what we're talking about in terms of numbers of main, of, of, of supporting these prisoners. I say I don't know what the current Massachusetts mm-hmm. costs are in the, in the DOC or in the sheriff's departments, but looking nationally... Um, there are some interesting stats. Um, for an inmate aged 55 to 59, it's about $11,000 a year for the medical costs. Um, for those that are 80 or older, it jumps to 40000 a mm-hmm. year. And that's just the medical costs. That's it just the medical. R- the cost of housing them, feeding them. The regular them. room and board, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the retrofitting. Mm-hmm. The retrofitting of cells, of showers to accommodate wheelchairs, et cetera. The physical plant, the infrastructure has to be in place. The expansion of the medical services and also age-appropriate programming. Um, idleness is never a good thing in, in at any age in a prison environment. So there have to be age-appropriate 
activities, which is very staff-intensive. So what you see here is a scenario of increased medical, increased security costs, because along with this expanded medical scope of service, you can pretty much count on an uptick in outside hospital trips. And oh. with that comes an added expense as well. Okay, so for all of the people who have shut me off now or have been screaming before that, mm-hmm. um, you say you have to have this and that. And there are lots of people saying, you don't have to have anything. You're in prison. Too bad for you. You committed the crime. I don't want to hear the fact that you're old and don't have, don't have a wheelchair or can't get you know better health care or whatever. I just don't care. So how do you deal with the fact that you have a population of people for whom most people are completely unsympathetic about this aging process? Well, the Supreme Court, I mean, first of all, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that it's cruel and unusual punishment to not provide at least adequate medical care to prisoners. So uh, even if the DOC agreed with the theoretical people that you were mentioning. Department of Corrections. um, Uh, Yes. (laughs) uh, They are under a constitutional mandate to provide at least adequate medical care. Um, So they have no choice with regards to that. But but also, uh, you know, their job is to uh, keep to, to lock these folks up and to keep it a safe and secure place. And if you have people who are incontinent or who have dementia and they're in general population, you know, striking out at people because of this is a this is actually an example that the Norfolk superintendent gave me of an inmate who had Huntington's chorea, which can cause people to strike out. Um, And that's a result of his medical condition. You can't safely keep him in general population. Um, That could that could cause a fight or a riot. And 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 just from a safety perspective, um, the department of corrections, you know, just from a hard, hard-nosed perspective, has to um, has to do something with these people. A couple of questions: Is it it would be cheaper for that kind of patient or one with other medical issues to be um, released uh, and be at home getting services that are still paid for by the state? But it seems to me they might be cheaper outside. Am I wrong in this? Well, I, I heard mm-hmm. Jamie Fellner's comments mm-hmm. earlier, and I think she's absolutely right. When you look at the sheer costs, um, releasing someone, in effect, shifts the medical cost to either Medicare or Medicaid. So that's that's an out-and-out cost shift. But you're, you would be saving, certainly, the security costs. But, you know, another cautionary note, it's um, – I hate to sort of broad brush one category, any subcategory of offenders – It's like anything in life. You have to look at each individual case because sadly, I mean, I've been a superintendent in a male facility and in a female facility in higher custody and lower custody. So I've seen the gamut. And, you know, quite frankly, there are lots of folks who reach that age in prison who have outlived their support systems. Hmm. They go without visits for years. Frankly, yes. So the piece we're not talking about is the reentry of these individuals if their sentence should expire when they are well into their 80s or 90s and the the, the issues that are attendant to that phenomenon. I I have to ask you, Kathleen uh, Dennehy, former um, Massachusetts Department of Corrections, um, what happens to some of those who are – okay, so they're – they're aging. They got some issues. But we worry out here that they still, if released to the public, could cause some harm. I mean, one of the concerns when Whitey Bulger was found was that he's not too old that he can't call up all his buddies, however old they are, to do harm to people if he's out here in the population. Shouldn't we not be concerned about that, even though it would appear that most of these people are low risk? I mean, you raise an absolutely, the, the question is right on target in the sense that I think you have to look at each individual case. You cannot broad brush one group of offenders and in the aggregate say they are at increased risk. Frankly, that's my opposition to the third strike bill Mm. um, because it denies a judge an opportunity to look at the mitigating factors and to have discretion based upon all the circumstances that are involved in the commission of the crime. And I, I apply that same principle when we're looking at releasing rather than in the aggregate releasing a group of offenders simply because of an age or a medical condition, I think you have to look at all the circumstances. You know, over the years, I can remember without divulging names, I can remember a very, very elderly offender who on paper would appear to be just the kind of person we'd be talking about who'd be appropriate for release. Long-term sex offender. Mm. 
and the the professionals at the table felt strongly that he would reoffend again. Um, and with an infant or a small child, right. perhaps that would not be difficult, even though he were wheelchair bound. So I think that um, given the stakes um, and given the information that the state has, it's not difficult to make an individual decision and assess each case. There's a master plan in Massachusetts that's considering to, to address the, the issue of, of um, elderly prisoners. Uh, what would you all say should would be the number one thing you think should happen now as a way of uh, perhaps saving some costs and addressing the population's needs? Beth? Uh, I would say I know that uh, when Governor Patrick uh, proposed his crime bill, um, which included the three strikes provision, it also included a a compassionate release component, which as as far as I know, did not actually make it into the bill that's currently being debated. So um, I agree with Ms. Dennehy. I I think um, adding compassionate release as one of a menu of options available to the Department of Corrections when they're dealing with um, elderly prisoners would certainly be helpful. I also want to point out that these activities of daily living units, while they provide uh, much more intensive services than general population, they're still cheaper than infirmary beds or hospital beds. Mm. Um, they're, they're actually a good cost-saving middle ground because when there's no beds in the ADL, these guys go to uh, hospitals, and mm. that's much more expensive. Got it. Or, or if they don't go to outside hospitals, they're actually taking up acute care beds within prison infirmaries, which really means you've now converting your infirmaries um, into housing units, which from a national perspective really violates some very basic standards. It's not the way to run health care in a correctional setting. So what would you suggest? I mean, I I, apl- I applaud the governor and Secretary Heffernan for the capital plan. Um, I think it, um, you know, question, it's a big question whether it would ever be funded. Mm. But I think as a document that spells out a vision, I think it's a good first step by calling for regional facilities, three of them, as I recall, roughly between 400 and 500 inmates apiece, and it would address the combined medical and mental health subacute um, case level, caseload. And I mean, number one, that gives you economies of scale. It lets you consolidate your medical staff, and it also gives you an opportunity to take the correctional staff and do some specialized training. Just as any of us who have had um, elders in our family, as their circumstances change, we need to adjust the way we interact with them and learn about different conditions. So, too, do the staff who work in the prisons. Um, this may come more easily to the medical staff, but the correctional staff really needs to develop that specialty in terms of how do you deal with an elder who can no longer appropriately respond to a command Mm -hmm. because of Alzheimer's or dementia. And prisons, like a lot of bureaucracies, run on routines. They don't run on exceptions. So I think there's quite a bit that can be done around training the staff. Um, The capital plan lays out the capital plan, the infrastructure, the operating piece, is what really makes that building come alive after it's built. How is the staff trained? Um, what what are the credentials of the staff? Um, what kinds of programming is offered for for this population? But I think it's um, it's a laudable first step. All right. Well, it's been an eye-opening conversation. I know not just for myself because who knew? Um, and you have to balance public safety versus the needs of these prisoners and. Where it, this population in general is aging, so we know that this is going to come up again. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm Callie Crossley. We've been talking about our aging population of prisoners and what needs to be done to care for them. I've been speaking with Beth Schwartz Apfel and Kathleen Dennehy. Beth Schwartz Apfel is a journalist who covers the criminal justice system. She recently wrote a piece on this for Boston Magazine. Kathleen Dennehy is the former commissioner for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Coming up, we talk to Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig about the big price tag that's stuck to our political system. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Love our contributors. That means you. 
Ann Russell's, a family gardening tradition for over 135 years, with annuals, perennials, herbs and shrubs, bird baths, statuary, pots, plus jewelry, gifts, and toys. Russell's Garden Center, Route 20, Wayland. And Tivoli Audio. I think WGBH and all it represents, both in this market and really around the world, is important for our company to be associated with. Tom DeVesto, founder and CEO. Tivoli Audio has just started a sponsorship, and we've already hear from people regularly that they hear the sponsorship on the radio and uh, really gets to our customers. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, pianist Jeremy Dank talks about his new album of Ligeti Piano Etudes and Beethoven Sonatas. You've got to be pretty obsessive to tackle some of these, and apparently he is. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals. Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. Bigger and better than ever. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us. Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. High-tech biotech. Innovation is what we in Massachusetts are about. Venture firms. The WGBH Economy Report, Friday during Morning Edition. A partnership between Xconomy.com and 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. Here with me in the studio is Lawrence Lessig. He's the director of the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics at Harvard University. He also teaches law at Harvard Law. He joins us today to talk about campaign finance reform, super PACs, and the effects of money on our political system. Lawrence Lessig, welcome. Great to be here. Um, you don't usually, these days anyway, put ethics and money in politics in the same <laughs> sentence. So here you are, uh, batting at windmills, perhaps, uh, and having this kind of conversation. I was impressed by the kinds of statistics that you um, have written about it uh, most recently for the Atlantic magazine. Um, One ninety-six and eighty percent stands out. Would you tell people what that means? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, of course, in this presidential election cycle, we've seen an explosion of super PACs, and these super PACs have been funded primarily by rich individuals, not really by corporations. Um, and as a study that was published in the Nation uh, concluded, a hundred and ninety-six Americans have contributed. 80% of the super PAC money that has been spent in the presidential election cycle at that point, which was about a month and a half ago. So 196 people contributing 80% gives a pretty clear sense of the way in which we fund uh, elections these days, which is the tiniest slice of the 1%. That's 0.0000063% of America um, has an enormous influence on the way that campaigns get run. I, I'm not certain that even those of us who are pretty cynical about how much money is being spent, and we hear these, particularly during the Republican uh, GOP presidential primary, hear these huge numbers tossed around, understood this. I mean, this is less than 200 people with an enormous amount of control over who will end up in various seats. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, how much money is being spent and how the money is being collected and raised, right? Because a lot of people are skeptical about whether money really works, whether it has the uh, determinative effect, you know, with the point where Santorum seemed like he might best uh, Romney. People said, see, Santorum has no money, and yet he's still winning. But the point is, if you focus on how money is collected or raised or inspired, we see there the obsessive attention that candidates give to those who would be giving the money, because it's the only way they can ex excite them into giving the money. And, you know, I, in my view, the real problem is not really even at the presidential level. It's at Congress's level, where members spend between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money to get back to Congress or to get their party back into power. They become extremely 
careful and well-focused on the tiniest slice of the 1% of America, and they um, increasingly become detached from the rest of us. So you've said that money really doesn't buy influence, but it buys access. To me, that's the same thing. Explain why it's not. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a very important debate in political science about whether we can show that money actually buys direct influence, you know, whether you can show money coming in and roll call votes coming out. And, and my point has been, you know, that debate is an interesting political scientist debate. Um, one thing we can be absolutely certain of is that America looks at the way we fund our system. And America believes money buys results in Congress. 75%, according to a poll we ran for my book, believe money buys results in Congress. Um, and, and this view leads people to be enormously cynical and have almost no trust or confidence in the institution. Last, last At the end of last year, um, ABC and New York Times did a poll that found 9% of America had confidence in Congress. You know, 9%. If you think, just put that in context, certainly a higher percentage of Americans believed in the British crown at the time of the revolution than who believe in our Congress today. So the institution is, if any institution can, political institution can be, politically bankrupt. It doesn't have the confidence of the people. And one core reason is that we see them playing the games they play in order to raise money, and we believe they don't care about what they're supposed to be caring about, which is uh, serving the people. So here we are post-Citizens uh, United Supreme Court decision, which uh, allowed for the floodgates of money to the super PACs and others, and um, the situation that you've described with Congress of people really trying to court the one percenters because they have to in order to, to stay and play the game. And you've written about your fear that we would get to, we the public, would get to a point of accepting this as the new normal. Aren't, are we not there yet? Uh, it feels like we are. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like, especially with this presidential campaign, because, uh, you know, neither candidate, neither Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, is going to make money in politics an issue. You know, Mitt Romney believes in the current system. He has defended the current system, believes corporations are persons. They ought to be able to spend whatever money they can. Um, and, and though I don't think Barack Obama wishes for a world where uh, money buys results in Congress, um, after spending three years just wishing and not actually proposing one piece of legislation that would have changed the influence inside of, inside of Washington, I think he's too embarrassed to raise the issue. Indeed, it was reported that they're beginning to airbrush criticisms of Citizens United from the webpage because they're a little bit uncomfortable being so clear criticizing Citizens United, but now building their own super PAC to, to defend against Romney. So we're going to have a presidential election cycle where this issue is completely invisible. And after the money that will be spent in this presidential uh, cycle with nobody even talking about the issue, it's going to be hard to get people to focus on it again or at least to get people inside the beltway to focus on it. Um, and, and, and I think that's the, that's the character of, of, of where we are in American politics. The insiders have one view of, of American politics, you know, where money is normal, where raising as much money as you can from a tiny fraction of the 1% is the way to do it. And people on the outside, this kind of outsider politics or exopolitics are increasingly uh, um, uh, cynical and skeptical and detached from that and think that that system is just deeply corrupt. And, and how these two politics meet and whether they can actually do something productive, I think, is the challenge that we have over the next four years. And just uh, to bring people up to what's current, at least in the last couple of days. Uh, Mitt Romney, $77 million. Uh, President Obama, $145 million at this moment. It, uh, something could have changed in the last couple of days. So now, that brings me to Americans Elect. That was the uh, laudable effort by some well-funded and well-positioned people of both parties uh, to really uh, fund a candidate of a third party uh, who would represent something other than the polarization that we've seen now and presumably get away from money as the driving issue. But it didn't work. Um, you, you had high hopes for it. Yeah, I had high hopes for it in a certain sense. When, when they first uh, launched this idea, um, uh, Peter Ackerman, who is one of the core uh, uh, you know, visionaries here, and his son, uh, Elliot Ackerman, came to visit me in Harvard, uh, at Harvard to describe their idea. And, and their real focus was on the need to get a kind of centrist candidate into the presidential election. And I told them at that time, you know, my view was, though I don't like the polarization, um, they, were, they were hacking at the wrong root here, that the, the lack of a centrist candidate wasn't a problem. It was the corruption of the political system that was the problem. It was the fact that regardless, 
uh, of who you had in, in the presidency, you were going to have a Congress that was constantly focused on how to keep the tiniest fraction of the 1% happy, and therefore nothing can happen, either on the left or on the right. You know, people on the right want a simpler tax system. They want to end the government bailouts. They want to slow down government spending. Those objectives cannot be achieved given the way we fund elections right now. And people on the left uh, who want uh, glo global warming legislation or better health care uh, or, or better financial reform, we won't get those things either because of the way we fund elections. So that's about the corruption of our political system, not about the lack of a centrist candidate. But over the course of this election, as the only candidate in the Republican Party who was actually raising this issue, Buddy Romer got shifted out of any uh, tension from the Republicans at all, even though he was uh, uh, literally the most qualified candidate in the field. He had more government experience than any of them. And when you added that to 20 years in private sector experience, he was an extremely qualified candidate. But because he had committed to taking no more than $100 from anybody, everybody said, you can't possibly win, buddy. So therefore, we're not going to take you seriously. You can't even be in a debate. When he failed so miserably in the Republican primary, my view was, well, maybe Americans elect is a mm. place where this person, a person could begin to make this an issue in the campaign. And if 15% of the public had indicated in polls that they supported this candidate, that person would have been on stage. And if you had had a person on stage with Mitt Romney and Barack Obama saying, this government is corrupted, and how can you be free to lead when you're spending all of your time at cocktail parties trying to raise money from the richest of the rich, um, then maybe we get some progress in this, in this uh, campaign. So there was a big push to get Buddy uh, uh, and and there were other reform candidates like that too. David Walker, who was the controller general, I think would have been a fantastic candidate too. Um, the big push to try to get them. But in the end, um, there was just not enough attention, not enough people participating to for any of them to get past the initial hurdles that America's elect uh, itself set up. And so they said nobody made it. So therefore, we're shutting down for the year. And it, it seems to me, I mean, this was the first third party effort that where there was really, uh, I thought, structurally a good chance. I did some work. We did, uh, had conversations with folks involved here on the show. But to get on the ballot everywhere first seemed to me to make imminent sense. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm just sort of at a loss with you as to why it didn't catch fire, given the public uh, distaste for or the what they say their distaste for the polarization, the kind of stuff that's going on, the money raising, the all, all of the stuff that you're, you're talking about now. Yeah, so they were very good um, on a part that was you know easy to kind of spec out how to do and then execute, which was go out and get enough signatures to um, get on the ballots everywhere. And they were on a, uh, a timetable uh, time that would get them onto 50 state ballots by the time of the election. But where it turned out... Um, they didn't execute as well, was in getting enough people inside of the um, of the organization who were committed and eager to be verified as a voter and eager to participate in the primaries. Um, you know, it was, even, it was not even possible for candidates who were declared candidates to send emails to other people in the Americans elect list, like they tried to protect mm. people from any of that kind of spam. Well, you know, if you're a presidential candidate, how do you campaign right. to the Americans elect? It's not like, you know, a New Hampshire primary where you can go to New Hampshire and go to the corners and meet people on the street. With Americans elect, there was no place. There was no people. There were no people. So, so in a certain sense, I don't think that people had thought through carefully enough how hard it was going to be to connect to people who are interested in Americans elect to get them to support you so that, you know, they had this initial hurdle. You had to get for a credible candidate, you had to get 10,000 votes from uh, 1,000 in each of 10 states. Um, and uh, uh, um, the non-declared uh, candidate, uh, um, uh, Ron Paul, got more than 9,000. He mm -hmm. came very close. But Buddy Romer well, he was, was the, also in the debates, too. And he's he was out in the there. debates, right. Yeah, so. But Buddy Romer, who was the leading uh, declared candidate, um, got close to 7,000 votes. But it was a really difficult process in the end to get enough people to sign up. And so since mm -hmm. nobody made it, um, they did what I think nobody expected them to do. They said – the rules have not been satisfied, therefore we're shutting down. Everybody, you know, all the kind of cynical, skeptical sorts out there, and I understand the cynicism and skepticism, all of them thought that this was a kind of ruse, this whole 
rule-based system. And that at the end, if it didn't work, they were going to vote to say, okay, we get to pick our own candidate yeah. and we pick Bloomberg or something like that. But I think to their credit, they held to their principles, they held to their rules, and they said nobody made it, so therefore we're just going to shut down this time. And who knows? Uh, you know, This was a, a, a big pathway created, so it leads to something else perhaps. Um, I, I don't want to conclude this conversation without uh, your giving a real-world example of someone who is actually governing at the moment, who is trying to uh, pay attention to the money issue in a very uh, concerted way. And that's, uh, you mentioned uh, John Sarbanes in one of your articles. If you could talk about what he's doing so that somebody is responding. Yeah, so John, so John Sarbanes is a, you know, he's the son of Paul Sarbanes, who's response, who's a, was a, an extraordinary senator from Maryland. Um, John is a third term congressman. Uh, and what, what Sarbanes is really focused on is how does he get a large number of small donors to support his campaign? Because, you know, you run for president, you can get millions of people to support. But when you're a regular congressman, as he put it to me, it just doesn't make sense to try to raise small dollar contributions when you can sit down with fat cats and get, you know, $5,000 checks. So he committed himself to a structure that forces him to raise small dollar contributions only. And he did that by raising about a three quarters of a million dollars and putting it into a trust. And the trust says he's not allowed to touch that money until he raises a thousand small dollar contributions mm. so that he is structurally driving his campaign to do the kind of small dollar funding that I think all candidates should be doing, even though it doesn't make sense for any of them to do it. He is, I think, the first person in the history of Congress to mm. ever tie his hands in this way to force himself to try to make sure he's responsive to small dollar con contributors, not big dollar uh, contributors. And uh, though I don't think many are going to follow his example voluntarily, you know, Sarbanes has been a big pusher for the kind of citizen funded small dollar alternative to the way we currently fund campaigns. So it can happen. It could happen mm. if Congress passed the law to support it. And that's what Congress has got to do. 30 seconds. Why do you care? Because I have children and our government can't begin to address the most fundamental issues it needs to address. You know, global warming, health care, financial reform, a clean, safe environment, the debt, all of these issues we will not address until we address this corruption first. And so I spent 140 days in hotels last year, not because my wife was wanting me out of the house, but because I'm out there trying to get people to think about this issue. It is critical we find a way to get this back into the center of political debate. Do you think it's catching fire? I talk to people all the time who are enormously passionate about it. We were just out at Concord to the League of Women Voters. There are 400 women there who are screaming about this issue. So yes, outside the beltway of Washington, it's catching fire. But the question is now, how do we take that fire and direct it into Washington and get them to do something about it? Thank you very much, Lawrence Lessig. We've been talking about big money and politics with Lawrence Lessig. Lawrence Lessig is a professor of law at Harvard Law School. He's also the director of the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Thanks so much for coming in. You. <laughs> you can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.